we finished chapter four last time. I actually want to back up and catch the tail end of chapter four to go into chapter five because it's really a continuous thought. So I'm going to pick it up at Acts 4.32, which, as I say, we actually covered last time. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now one of the things I said last time, when the Mayflower came to the New World, before they landed, they made a compact. And the compact was based on this part of Acts, which said that the believers had a commune. And everybody threw everything they had into a common pot and you took what you needed, which sounds a great deal like the Communist Manifesto, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And quite frankly, that's one of the reasons communism is so attractive, is because it seems so fair and egalitarian that if you got a lot and I don't have enough, you should give me some of yours and so forth. Unfortunately, the Mayflower colony, the first year, nearly starved to death because since everything was in common, people quickly figured out that it didn't matter how hard you worked. So the industrious ones that were working hard looked around and saw that there were a bunch of people who weren't working hard at all and they were supporting them. And so they slacked off and pretty soon, instead of everybody coming up to the industrious ones, everybody sagged down to the lazy ones and they nearly starved to death. They voided the compact and then the next year they gave each family a plot of land that they could do with as they pleased and anything they raised belonged to them. They could eat it, they could sell it, do anything what, and after that they prospered. Which, by the way, was the reason for the first Thanksgiving. The prospering of that second season, if you will, after the Mayflower. The other thing I said last time is you see this kind of behavior where everybody gets together in one place and they sell all their property and they divest themselves of stuff. You see that among doomsday cults. You know, every now and then, You'll get this group that'll show up in the news that they've sold everything they owned and they've gone to sit on a hillside to await the aliens or the second coming or whatever it is they're awaiting. Same thing sort of happened with the Jim Jones group down in Guyana. None of that happened with this group. And I sort of inferred from that that they were of the opinion that Yeshua was coming back quickly. So there wasn't anything in this world that was holding them back. They didn't need to worry about planning for the next season. They didn't need to worry about earning a living or anything like that. They sold everything they had, and they were going to wait for Yeshua to return. And, of course, it's now been 2,000 years, and we're still waiting. Still waiting expectantly, but still waiting. In fact, Israel, when Israel was 
reformed after World War II, the kibbutz system was also formed along these lines, which makes sense because these are all Jews. I mean, everybody in this Jerusalem commune is a Jew. After World War II, they came out of Eastern Europe, where, of course, socialism was big and communism was big and so forth. And they came and they formed the kibbutz system, which is organized basically the same way. Today, virtually every kibbutz has converted to free market. The only kibbutz that I know of, and I I don't know them all, and I'm not saying this is exhaustive, but the only kibbutz that I know of that operates this way is a Christian kibbutz, which is Bedel. And they, in fact, do operate this way. And so far, they've made it work for two generations. But the problem they have, when we were there in 2011, which now is six years ago, we sat down with them because one of the things they were concerned about is the third generation. We had the generation that came out of Germany and formed the kibbutz and got everything going. And they were all hot and on fire for God. And by the time you get to the third generation, the kids are still believers. They haven't gone off into paganism or anything, but they're just not real red hot on this kibbutz stuff. So my inference here is this divestiture of everything and so forth is a phenomenon which indicates to me that they expect the imminent return of Messiah and the imminent establishment of his reign on earth. And so the earthly stuff that we all have is not important. That's not in scripture. That's simply based on human nature, what I think is going on. So now we're down to chapter 5. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. The first question that everybody always asks is, what did he do wrong? Again, you can only answer by inference. Peter clearly says, you didn't have to sell it. It belonged to you. There's no requirement here that you sell anything. So while it belonged to you, it was yours. Once you sold it, there's no requirement that you bring us the money. But you did decide to bring us the money. Now, here's where I'm making an inference. The inference here is he led them to believe that he had brought the entire proceeds of the sale. In other words, everybody was bringing the proceeds of their sales. He sort of wanted to get in on the bandwagon. It's a social pressure kind of a thing. You know, you're all selling your stuff and bringing it in and laying it at the apostles' feet. Well, I guess I'm going to be a member of this group. I better sell something and I better lay it at the apostles' feet so I'll be one of the crowd. The implication that he intended to give was that he had sold his land and had given the entire proceed to the apostles. And of course, he hadn't. He had kept some of it back. 
I suspect that if he had come into the apostle and said, all right, I sold my plot of land for $10,000. I'm donating six to the church. Everything would have been fine. There would have been no problem whatsoever. So I'm inferring here that the problem is that he intended to puff himself up in the presence of everybody else by giving the impression that he had bought the entire sale price in. In other words, I've divested myself of my worldly goods when in fact he hadn't. So that's the lie I think is being told. The other thing I find fascinating here, Peter looks him in the eyes and says, you just lied to the Holy Spirit. And the guy turns white and goes toes up. Why didn't anybody go try and find his wife? If we were in a church service and, God forbid, somebody went toes up on us, the first thing we'd try and do is get a hold of relatives and say, your husband, wife, brother, father, uncle, whatever, has just died. There doesn't seem to be any effort on that part. They just drag the corpse out and bury it. (laughs) It's like, there's a dead one, get him out of here before he stinks up the place. I'm not reacting to the fact that they didn't mourn him and they didn't any of that because he had been caught in a lie and God is the one that struck him down. I, I get that. But the idea that by the time his wife shows up, nobody's told her your husband's dead. Nobody's going out and look for her. And I don't know what to do with that. I truly don't. But they didn't. And so when she waltzes in, verse 7, After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And as I say, that's the part that I find really kind of strange. So, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, this also follows a biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is... God will tell you to do something. Somebody will disobey. That person will be made an example of. The textbook example is after the Exodus, when God gives them the Sabbath, right? And you get this guy that goes out and starts picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And they don't know what to do with him. So they take him to Moses, and Moses says, I don't know what to do with him. Moses goes to God. God says, stone him. So they take the guy out and stone him. That's the only instance in the Bible that you can find of anybody being stoned for violating the Sabbath. And the pattern in the scripture seems to be God gives an instruction. Somebody either disobeys or tests it. There is immediate severe consequences to that and then you never hear of it again. There's a Chinese proverb, I won't get it right, 
but it's slap the squirrel to scare the monkey. The monkey's right, the squirrel's not. I don't know what you slap. But the idea here is you find somebody that has made a mistake, you go and you slap the heck out of him with the idea that the monkey over here, who is also going to be tempted to do the same thing, is going to observe what happened to the squirrel and is never going to do anything because he's afraid. In fact, there's a rabbinic story. It was in a book of vignettes, and I'm assuming it's a true story because there's any reason why it wouldn't be, of a group of yeshiva boys who have done something wrong. I don't remember what the thing wrong was. So the head of the yeshiva picks out the best of the boys. You know, he's very high in his class, he's doing very well, he's very smart, very well liked, and he expels him. Not suspends him, expels him. And the idea there in the rabbi's thinking is, all right, this guy is going to be a superstar, he's going to be a rabbi someday, he is not going to have any problem whatsoever finding another school because he is so sharp. And by nailing the best of the bunch, what you tell the lesser ones is, if I'm willing to take out the best guy under these circumstances, just think what I'll do to you if I need to. So God seems to work on that principle, and I will suggest that the reason God works on that principle is he made us, and he knows how we think. He makes an example of the guy picking up sticks. He makes an example of Achan. When Achan is at Jericho and, they, and the instructions are, don't take anything out of Jericho, and Achan finds a wedge of gold and a, and a Babylonian garment and he takes them and hides them, Achan gets stoned with his whole family. So what's happening here with Ananias and Sapphira is the continuation of a pattern in Scripture that goes clear back at least to the Exodus. In that sense, it isn't anything new or unusual at all. I'm all the way down to verse 12 now. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. I have no idea who none of the rest were. I don't know what we're talking about there. So what you have is signs and wonders done by the hands of the apostles. They, the apostles, were all together on Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. And that could be the rest of the sect of the way, the followers of Yeshua. The apostles being sort of the heavy hitters in the crowd would go into the face of the temple authorities and stand there and teach. But the other believers were sort of I'm not sure I want to be right up there in the temple. That may be who we're talking about here. Certainly a reasonable inference. I don't know any better unless somebody else does. It could also be taken as the ones who did not dare join them were non-Messianic Jews. Having seen how the temple authorities dealt with these folks, they didn't want to be around them. That's also a good inference. The reason... I sort of lean toward mine instead of yours, even though yours is very reasonable, I, you know, is because the next sentence in verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, 
so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. So the idea here is the apostles are standing there teaching, and they are obviously drawing a crowd. They are obviously drawing people to Yeshua. They are obviously doing signs and wonders. People are being healed and all that kind of stuff, which is why I sort of lean to the interpretation I give, which is the ones who did not dare show up were the new converts, although your reading is you know, perfectly reasonable. But as I say, they are drawing crowds, and they are converting people, and they are healing and so forth. So if there are people that are not Messianic Jews who are afraid to associate with them, they're not a majority, because there are lots of people who are willing to associate with them. The other thing that's going on here, let, let me finish the paragraph and then talk about it for a second. So let me pick it up, verse 14 now, with a different train of thought. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the street and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people who gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. You'll find two things in churchianity today. One is a dearth of signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit. There don't seem to be a lot of churches that have visible signs of the Holy Spirit present today. And one of the justifications that they give for that is they say that the things that are going on in this paragraph of Acts were only for the time of the apostles and only for the rapid growth of the church and only applied to Paul and 12 apostles or 11, depending on how you want to count them, and that those gifts have faded now and are no longer applicable. That's an argument that is given out of circumstance not an argument that comes out of Scripture. So the deal is you go to a church, there's no visible signs of the presence of the Spirit. The pastor tells you, well, that was for then, but he cannot cite Scripture to that effect because it doesn't exist. And so because there are no signs in his church, he comes up with a doctrine that justifies the absence of signs of the Spirit. And I don't mean he personally, the denomination that he's part of. So there are denominations who will openly teach that activity like this was confined to the first century church and it doesn't exist anymore. You know, as pastors grow up in that church, that's what they've been told, so they don't expect the presence of the Holy Spirit. They don't call on the presence of the Holy Spirit, so it becomes a self-fulfilling doctrine. Because if you don't ever go to God and ask for the power of the Spirit, expecting that you will get it, you won't. So if at some point in the past, having lost track of the Holy Spirit, if your doctrine then says, well, just because we lost track of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us. It just means that that was for then and this is now. We're still okay. And oh, by the way, 
don't ask for the Holy Spirit, because if you do ask for the Holy Spirit and nothing happens, that calls into doubt the authority of Scripture. Because Scripture says, among other things, these signs will follow those who believe. In other words, there's all sorts of stuff in here saying that believers should have the power of God through the Holy Spirit active in their lives and in their fellowship. So if we never ask for it and it never comes, we're okay. But if we do ask for it and it doesn't come, then what do we do with those passages of Scripture that say we should have it? Oh, well, that was for then, this is now. Do you understand how the human mind works there? By the way, just so you know, the church that you are attending right now is of the opinion that these gifts have not been revoked. They are still operative, and we can still use them. We can still call on them. We can lay hands on the sick and expect them to recover. We can speak with new tongues if we so desire. We can do all the things that the Scripture says that we should be able to do. Now, having said that, a lot of us aren't very good at it. If your faith does not result in action, your faith does not exist. In other words, as you act on your faith, God meets you and reinforces things. One of my favorite sayings, which is my own, is if you go to a hospital and you lay hands on the sick and the poor sod dies, you step over the corpse and go on to the next one. Because all you're commanded to do is lay hands on the sick and anoint them with oil and pray. That's what you're commanded to do. If you don't get the results you hope for, that isn't your problem. That's God's problem. And a lot of people get in their own way because, gee, I'm standing in front of all these people. What if I say, be healed, and he dies? I mean, how am I going to look? What are people going to think of me? I spent 20 years in the military. I understand orders. God says do this, so I do it. And the results are not my problem. The results are up to God. And quite often, God does what my understanding says he should do. And in fact, Matthew gave a sermon this week, and some of you are there. The Torah is true and eternal. We live in three and a half dimensions. And what we see of the Torah is a projection from God's space into our space. And the way Matthew described it is, if I take my hand and hold it like this, and I look down at the table, I can see five fingers. If I take my hand and hold it so that it's vertical like that, and look at my shadow on the table, now I see a straight line. Or a single finger, depending on how you want to describe it. The hand has not changed. The hand is still the same as it was. What's changed is the projection of the hand onto the table. So God gives you in his word truth. What he says is true. We live in time and space, and so what we do is we get a projection of that, and then we try and take that projection and apply it to our circumstances. But the way we apply it may, in fact, 
not be true to the original object, it's only true to the projection. Yeshua said to his apostles, go, make disciples of all nations. Lay hands on the sick and they will recover. You can handle snakes and they won't hurt you any. And we have an example of that later on in Acts where Paul gets bit by a snake. That's an unequivocal, unqualified statement by Yeshua. I have laid hands on the sick and sometimes they've recovered just like I hoped they would and sometimes they haven't. And in fact, uh, when my daughter was in high school, she had a friend that was very sick and they asked me to come in and lay hands on and pray and so forth. And I laid hand and prayed and she immediately had a lung collapse and had to get taken to ICU in Denver. And her mother just went ballistic. That doesn't mean I quit laying hands on the sick. I have also laid hands on people with cancer and had them get healed. That's what I'm saying. I am looking at a projection of God's word, which is true, and I'm looking at a projection in my space, and I am acting according to my view of the projection, which may in fact not be completely true to the thing that's being projected. I just do what the book says. And the results of that are up to God. They're not up to me. I can't control the results. All I control is my behavior. But again, if you belong to a church whose doctrine is this is not active anymore, then you never will see the power of the Spirit. So from my perspective, it's better to follow the directions and deal with a bunch of failures, which I have, because of the successes that I get, which I also have. And if I didn't follow the directions, I wouldn't get any failures, but I wouldn't get any successes either. Yeah, back to Acts. So now we're all the way down to 517. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So they get the court together and they go get these guys out of jail and bring them into court. 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. In other words, oh shoot, they put them in jail and we lost them. That's what wondering what this would come to means. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And certainly they were going into the middle of a crowd and picking up a popular street preacher 
is perilous to begin with. But you all remember the deal with Elijah, where he's outside of town and he's sitting on top of a hill, and the king sends 50 armed soldiers and says, go get that prophet and bring him to me. And the first 50 get toasted. Elisha is still sitting up on top of the hill, so he sends 50 more. And the second 50 get toasted. So he sends 50 more, and the captain of the third 50 crawls on his hands and knees and says, oh, please, don't kill me, I'm just the messenger here, and so forth. So there may be some of that, too. So anyway, they're being very careful with bringing these guys in. So verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That, that bringing this man's blood upon us. Now, Brian has an interesting take on that. Bringing this man's blood upon us is biblical speak for saying, charging us with his murder and finding us guilty of bloodshed. That's what that means. That's what they are saying. Of course, being covered with the blood of Yeshua is a good thing. So Brian reads this as, sounds like a good thing to me. Do with that whatever you want. 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Yeshua, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to those things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So it is up yours, O priest. You have no authority over us. We're not going to listen to you. 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the, in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. In other words, Gamaliel stands up and says, all right, take the prisoners out while we talk about this. And of course, you all know that Gamaliel is Paul's teacher. Heavy hitter, obviously he's got the moral authority to stop the proceedings in here and, and jerk the high priest up by the stacking swivel and say, hold it a minute, we, we need to talk about this. So obviously a man of considerable substance. 35. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So Gamaliel will say, obviously, just let it run. And if it's nothing, it'll come to nothing. 
But if you try and thwart it, and it is of God, you're just going to get munched up. And you're still not going to be able to stop it. By the way, why did they crucify Yeshua? They were afraid that the Romans would come and put them under a police state, take away their self-government, because Yeshua was making kingdom talk, which is to say Yeshua was making talk like he was going to be the Messiah and was going to reestablish the kingdom, which would have flown in the face of the Roman Empire. So the decision to crucify Yeshua was a political one. If we don't take care of this rebel, then he may get a following, and then Rome will come and clamp down on us to put down the rebellion. That is the same fear that they are dealing with here. And Gamaliel saying, hey guys, this has happened a couple times before. It gets up to be four, five, six hundred people, and then the leader gets killed, and they all scatter, and it comes to nothing. And by the way, this is a time of messianic expectation. They're looking for a Messiah at this point. It's the same thing that was happening in the Exodus, which we're reading in the Torah portion. They were expecting a Messiah then too, which is the reason for the killing of the boy babies. It's also the reason why Herod went through and killed all the toddlers at the time of Yeshua's birth. It's entirely political. And prophetically, they are looking for a Messiah. And the prophecy says, these are the parameters. Therefore, if I kill all the boys between this age and this age, I'm going to get this guy, and he's not going to be a problem. And in Pharaoh's case, he had the right bandwidth. Because Moses should have, in fact, Moses was thrown into the Nile River. It was only the intervention of Pharaoh's daughter that saved him. And similarly, Yeshua had to flee to Egypt to avoid it because, again, he was in the proper bandwidth. So this is all political. Bakakba would follow, and in fact, there would be a Roman reaction to put that down. So this, this is a very politically sensitive thing. Let's pick it up at 39. This is Gamaliel again. But if it is God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them <laughs> and charged them not to speak in the name of Yeshua and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Yeshua as the Messiah. So there we are. And next time we'll pick it up and we'll go into the establishment of deacons and the stoning of Stephen and so forth. And I mentioned when we first started that there are some differences in the account in Acts and what is said in the Torah. I mentioned that there was a thing on Aish where a guy noted that difference, that what the New Testament says here in Acts is different than what it says in the Torah and so wound up throwing out the New Testament because it wasn't accurate. You're going to come upon one of those instances in chapter 7. And that's when Stephen is giving his testimony before he gets stoned. And what he's going to say is he's going to say that 
the patriarchs are buried in Shechem. And that is not true. Abraham and Jacob and probably Isaac are buried in Hebron. And so this guy saw that and says, wait a minute. This says they're buried in Shechem. That's clearly not right because the Torah says they're buried in Hebron. So this New Testament stuff must be wrong. I don't see it that way. What I see it is Stephen is reciting scripture on the fly. You ever seen me recite scripture on the fly? And people out here, wait a minute, you mean, and, and you'll get me corrected and reeled back in? So Stephen is quoting scripture on the fly and he says something wrong. What that tells me is not that the New Testament is wrong, it tells me that the New Testament has accurately recorded what Stephen said, rather than cleaning it up. The people who wrote the New Testament knew the Torah, so they knew that the patriarchs are not buried in Shechem. But rather than go back and clean that up, they've just left it there because it's an accurate recording of what Stephen actually said. And there are several of those as we go through Acts. I'm just telling you, you're coming up on one. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.